This is Salt and Spine. We all really care about changing food media while we have the chance. We need to hire more people of color in positions of power. Across the board, it's, it's a very, very white space. I really don't know how Bon Appetit could save this brand, how Condé Nast could save this brand. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You're tuning in today for a special episode, the first in our month-long series on representation in the food media industry, including cookbook publishing. We're breaking the mold of our show a bit this month, and instead of our traditional one-on-one interviews, all month long, Salt and Spine producer Madeline Forbes and I will be talking with cookbook authors, editors, and agents, as well as food writers, columnists, podcast hosts, and the next generation of young chefs about how we can build a more equitable industry. Now, today's episode is titled What Happened at Bon Appetit and What Can Food Media Learn? We'll dive into the cookbook industry next week, but we thought first we'd take a look at what's been happening at Bon Appetit magazine and their test kitchen, uh, famous for the YouTube videos, as a starting point for this conversation. So it's been a big topic of conversation in food media, but if you've missed it, let's take a listen to what has been happening at Bon Appetit. From the NFL to Bon Appetit magazine, apologies and resignations have followed a reckoning in corporate America. Black employees sounding the alarm about toxic work environments at the same companies that declared Black Lives Matter and pledged large donations to social justice groups. The resignation of Bon Appetit chief editor Adam Rappaport following the public sharing of a photo of Rappaport and his wife dressed as Puerto Ricans for Halloween. Neither is of Puerto Rican descent. Adam Rappaport said he is stepping down to reflect on what he needs to do to become a better human being. The picture was posted by Adam Rappaport's wife in 2013, who tagged the photo Boricua, which is a reference to Puerto Ricans. She called Rappaport Papi, and you can see in this picture he was uh, wearing a large, heavy chain, a do-rag, and a baseball cap. It was just the tip of the iceberg for the magazine, as more claims of pay inequality, work inequality, and stereotyping of people of color have torn through Condé Nast. Several employees with Bon Appetit spoke out, saying the magazine is not inclusive and does not treat minorities equally. A Bon Appetit staffer also says that white employees were paid for their YouTube cooking segments when employees of color were not. One assistant food editor said her salary was much lower than her colleagues, and while she appeared in the magazine's popular YouTube videos, only the white editors were paid for their appearances. I was just sad that people who did the same work did not get paid the same or didn't get paid at all when their white counterparts got paid. That, to me, was atrocious. And why Bon Appetit was such a big deal is because it touched upon these bigger issues that have been brewing for a long time. It's not just a brown face photo. It was more about this bigger story of who's presenting food to people. I think that people had kind of had this feeling about Bon Appetit for a while that something wasn't quite right, particularly about the way that they dealt with diversity and race. If you've ever watched BA's YouTube channel in the past, you already know that they have a huge diversity problem. That's nothing new.
Now, nothing new is right. Back in January, Soleil Ho, restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and co-host of the paper's brand new food podcast, Extra Spicy, succinctly titled a weekly newsletter, quote, the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen's race problem, and called out how people of color are, quote, sidelined or relegated to cameos on their white colleagues' shows. And criticism of Bon Appetit has been a part of the conversation uh, for longer than that. But the public-facing reckoning that led in just the span of a few hours on June 8th to then Bon Appetit editor-in-chief Adam Rappaport's resignation began when freelance food and wine writer Tammy Teclamarium tweeted that brown-faced photo. That set off a firestorm of activity as Bon Appetit staffers began to share publicly their experiences of working for the company. At first, it was staffers of color who bravely shouldered the risk of speaking out, and eventually white colleagues, too, became more vocal. To hear more about how staff of color were the first to speak out about this and the push to get white staffers to join their calls, we recommend listening to Sola Elwaley's conversation with Dan Pashman on the Sporkful podcast. Now we're talking with three players in today's episode. First, we have writer Tammy Teclamaria who tweeted the brown face photo of Adam Rappaport about how these issues have been brewing at Bon Appetit and other media outlets and how a food media reckoning is making its way across the industry. Then we're joined by podcast host and cookbook author Kathy Irway to talk about some of the structural elements of food publishing that have created this race problem. And finally, Bon Appetit's research director Joey Hernandez joins us to give some insight into how Bon Appetit staffers are working to change the publication from the recipes on up. Now, first, I called up Tammy Teclamariam. Tammy tells me she originally began looking into Bon Appetit when she considered whether she might want to work there. That's when she began to learn about some of the deep-rooted issues at the Condé Nast-owned outlet. So, like, I had been a pretty vocal, maybe antagonist of Bon Appetit, like, off and on, just even on Twitter for a while, like, talking to people that I had access to that I knew worked there to figure out if, like, working there was something that I could try to do. When I realized that it actually, one, was not a place that I would even have a chance at, but then also like how bad it was, even if you were there, I just kind of like wrote off Bon Appetit as um, just another facet of white supremacy in media. Adam Rappaport specifically caught Tammy's attention, too, particularly after he tweeted in 2016 that he'd played golf with Donald Trump, who he described as, quote, a fun guy, good dad and well-read. I never forgot about this thing that Rappaport had tweeted about Trump two weeks after the election. I think I was upset about it at the time, but I also just, you know, nobody was listening to me. He's kind of been this figure that I've never really even had a chance to understand in food because he's so unrelated to food. So it's not like I would ever really read his writing. Like, he doesn't know how to cook. Like, that's his whole shtick, right? So, like, I never, like, even got to learn about him through just, like, who he is. So, you know, I just ask about him. Who is this guy that runs Bon Appetit? What is the deal? Nothing I learned really, like, uh, was for the better. I had already just, like, had this, like, really low opinion of Rappo and Bon Appetit. And then it kind of just, like, coalesced with the political uprising and social movement around Black rights. And so, you know, as I'm going to protest, as I'm living in New York, going through all of the things that everybody knows we've been going through, you know, I just started to feel really unsatisfied in every direction. I don't know if I was actively like putting the two things together until the weekend before I linked to that picture. The week before that Monday was when Rappaport published that letter, that hollow letter that everybody immediately identified as fake. Yeah. And then that Tuesday, 
was the day that everybody was posting black squares to their Instagrams. And so like I tweeted this joke that Tuesday, like if somebody posts a black square to their Instagram and no caption, it means they want Adam Rappaport fired as editor in chief of Bon Appetit. And that got like hundreds of likes from like lots of people in media. And so I was like, oh, so we all hate him. That letter Tammy mentions is an open letter to Bon Appetit readers from Rappaport titled, quote, Food Has Always Been Political. It immediately saw backlash from its toned-down, cookie-cutter language and its lack of any real acknowledgement of Bon Appetit's issues or any concrete commitments to change. And we should note here, too, that another food writer, Ileana Masonette, who you'll hear from on a later episode this month, also shared on Twitter that day screenshots of Rappaport's patronizing responses to her questions around one of her story pitches. As Tammy and Ileana's tweets elevated the conversation on social media, Bon Appetit staffers and contributors began to respond as well. One of the first to speak up, Sola El Whaley, took to Instagram to share that people of color were not being compensated for their video work in the way that white staffers were. Quote, I've been pushed in front of video as a display of diversity, she wrote on Instagram. Bon Appetit fans began rallying behind Sola. A video montage of white staffers calling on her for help in the kitchen took off on Twitter. Previous Salt and Spine guest Priya Krishna, who has occasionally recorded videos for Bon Appetit, said on Twitter that the brown face photo, quote, erases the work that BIPOC on staff have long been doing behind the scenes, and that she, quote, plans to do everything in my power to hold the EIC and systems that hold up actions like this accountable. As far as the Bon Appetit stuff, very little reporting on my part. It's just like people have been sending me information and I've sort of like been assessing it for importance or validity or just like you know understanding this whole story as it's happening and sort of like relaying that to their fans which is very funny of course this is a broader story than just bon appetit or conde nast i talked with tammy about what lessons food media can learn from the public reckoning at bon appetit i think it's important that you noted that this wasn't an overnight thing at Bon Appetit um, mm-hmm. and that they're not an anomaly. I mean, these are systemic issues across food media, across media writ large, publishing. Are there lessons, though, from what, like, from the very sort of public reckoning that took place at Bon Appetit that the rest of the media industry or publishing industry can sort of look to? Well, unfortunately, it really takes airing out the issues for the marginalized people to get enough support within their own institution. And unfortunately, without this public pressure, nothing would have happened. It's very encouraging that so many people have been galvanized around supporting them, supporting what they see as obvious and injustice. And like that is really the only thing that they have to leverage when they're being underpaid, they're being poorly treated, their management does not care about HR at all. I mean, in the case of Condé Nast, HR truly exists to protect the company, truly. And so it's just like, how are people supposed to have a livelihood? And I think people recognize that from their own lives, from the own mistreatment in their respective workplaces. You don't have to be in media to sympathize with these people that you've watched on YouTube or whose recipes you've cooked. Yeah. And food is so personal, too, that like, you know, you can like really sense, like really develop affectionate feelings over the way people cook. That's why so many people watch cooking shows and don't cook themselves, you know? Or even like, that's why like my grandmother who didn't speak English could watch cooking shows and be entertained by them. Like there's still like so much that gets translated in these actions. And, you know, and I think that Bon Appetit was really, I mean, in not allowing all of these people to 
reach their potential in these public jobs, they were really selling their fans short. And people were eager to grasp on a way to get to have the kind of content that they would like. Some of the progress that needs to be made within Condé Nast could come from solutions, like better union representation, Tammy notes. But like people don't even talk about Bon Appetit unionizing. Like that's not even like in their imagination yet. And it's like, it's true because right now they're at a total standstill. They have nobody that wants to take the job of editor-in-chief. They truly cannot find somebody to hire. And also, just like as an aside, like they're not going to find somebody during Mercury Retrograde. A little bit of astrology goes a long way. Like these dummies. Like it's just like, I'm serious. Like you, like they don't have a fucking astrologer in the whole building. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, so they absolutely are landlocked because nobody wants to work there. They don't have anybody in-house that wants to clean it up. So you have this massive situation where like, okay, like I guess all of the white people said that in solidarity, they weren't going to appear in videos until their coworkers are, you know, justly compensated. But from what I've heard, Conde Nast is not uh, rushing to justly compensate them. You know, as much as I love Joey and Priya, I don't know Sola, but I love her. Yeah. Um, and Jesse and Ryan, like, I really don't know how Bon Appetit could save this brand, how Kanye Nas could save this brand from, I mean, from just the poor management of this whole situation, you know, leaving their fans who are extremely progressive people who have lots of other options for entertainment. Like people are really just asking like, so have you fired Alex Delaney? Because we all saw that, that vine of him saying the F word and, you know, to not see any response, to not see any sort of, attempt to even assage anybody's sensitivities about that you cannot alienate the lgbtq community you can't yeah you can't like it's beyond irresponsible it's idiotic it also doesn't reflect the opinions of a lot of the people that work there and so it's just like it's clear as this goes on that it's just unraveling the toxicity at every level you know and current management is literally i mean whoever has been placed in charge I could name them, but I won't. Oh. The people who have been placed in charge like, are actually just refusing to make decisions because they don't want any of the responsibility that they've been given. And I wouldn't want it either. But yeah. somebody's got to take it. And you know, you have this huge issue where like, whoever is, uh, like whoever gets this job also ultimately has to be approved by Anna Wintour, which is like the funniest like, it's just like the the two, like nobody exists who can like uh, proceed with the mandate of Bon Appetit's incredibly successful YouTube, who will also be appealing to Anna Wintour. Like these two things are at a square. That's also astrology. And like, it just, it's not going to work. Yeah. So like, I don't know. It's like, for me, like I have nothing at stake here. Burn it down. Like, like, you know, Ryan can work at Teen Vogue. Uh, like they can like, you know, give Jesse a job somewhere else. Like I, I see like all of the people we love being placed. Uh, I have no concern over like, you know, Brad's future cookbook deal or Carla Music's future cookbook deals. Like, fuck them. Like, yeah. 
I asked Tammy if this was just the beginning of a food media reckoning. On the day we talked, Tammy had just finished a weekend focused on uncovering allegations against Los Angeles Times food editor Peter Meehan, who has been a partner in the David Chang media empire, including editor of Lucky Peach magazine. One source told Tammy that Peter was, quote, 100 times worse than Adam Rappaport. That coincided with growing calls for John T. Edge to resign. Edge, a white man, is the head of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and a push for him to cede his position, which he's held for two decades, reemerged after Chef Tunde Wei directly challenged John to resign and make space for new non-white leadership. And Tammy's focus also included the New York Times, where she said a lack of diversity in its food team has created problematic and offensive coverage. We'll see if anything happens to the New York Times food section, because they really do seem somebody used this word with me earlier today about them. But like Teflon, maybe Teflon is in the word, but like they they really do seem like, you know, they've gotten to avoid a lot of it. But like here we are, like with Kim Severson tweeting disparagingly about Tunde. And it's like, keep Tunde's name out of your mouth. Like you do not deserve to even quote Tunde if this is how you're going to treat him. And it's like, we're not joking. We are not joking. And it's like, I don't think that they understand that there are other options in the New York Times right now for developing uh, a career and being recognized. Granted, like still like everybody clings to the New York Times and I get it. I have these same insecurities too. <laughs> like, sure. Because it's just like everybody's parents understand what the New York Times is, you know, yeah. and the meaning of that. But then it's like, we need to teach people the ways that the New York Times is failing its readers and its subjects. And the fact that they don't have a black reporter all this time. Is, in the food section? Yeah, in the food section is disgusting. The fact that they don't have a full-time, as far as I know, a full-time black employee. And it's like everybody there with power is white. Like if you just look at the masthead, you know, like, I mean, Tadel's in California. Tadel's amazing. We love her. Right. Lagaya. We love her. And it's very, very bad. And it's why they keep making these dumb mistakes that aren't going to be fixed until they hire black people. And they have to hire black people and pay them the same thing that they were paying the white people. You know, don't just like create pockets of opportunity for Alison Roman and then not recreate that for any subsequent person. Because otherwise, like there's no other way to tell that story other than white supremacy. The question of who holds the power, who makes the decisions, and who gets a voice, a cookbook deal, a TV show, extends beyond food media like Bon Appetit and the New York Times to cookbook publishing as well. There are very few, almost none, cookbooks written by Black people that aren't explicitly about some facet of Blackness. And it would be really nice if media didn't expect Black people to have to survive on their Blackness for attention. If you have more people in positions of power where like by positions of power, I mean like people in publishing houses or people who can assign things at newspapers or magazines, you know, when those people are black, they have a different gaze and they see things and they see what is interesting in a different way than most of the people who see things now. And, you know, it's not that content by black people and people of color wouldn't be incredibly successful. The world is begging for it. You had people in Bon Appetit's YouTube comments begging for them to feature Sola more, to give her her own show, you know? It's just, they're not listening. And so if media really wants to execute any kind of believable change, it's going to have to start by giving Black people and people of color power. 
I think that like that's the two kinds of white people, the ones that are ready to start giving up power and the ones that are like panicking and clinging to it, um, sure. whether or not they admit it to themselves. Shortly after Tammy shifted the spotlight to Peter Meehan, he resigned from his role at the LA Times. Notably, he had been running the food section from New York and did not relocate to or live in Los Angeles. Tammy reported that sources told her Meehan, quote, has no boundaries in the workplace, that he fostered an environment filled with belittlement and physical intimidation. Quote, some female employees were sexually harassed, Tammy writes, and quote, in the Lucky Peach office, he slapped a woman's ass. Some people who worked for Peter took to social media to share their experiences enduring what one staffer called his, quote, reign of misery, and to affirm what Tammy reported. Many others shared that they could not speak out because of non-disclosure agreements they'd signed. At Bon Appetit, we also saw the resignation of Matt Ducker, Condé Nast's head of video, after racist and homophobic tweets from his account surfaced. Ducker also fostered a workplace culture that devalued people of color, staffers said, and he did not work to elevate non-white voices within the brand. Another Bon Appetit staffer, video editor Matt Hunziker, was suspended by Bon Appetit after criticizing the company's failures on social media. His colleagues, including several people of color, have publicly backed Hunziker, calling him a, quote, advocate for people of color and saying the suspension was a retaliatory move by Condé Nast. As of this episode, John T. Edge has not resigned from the Southern Foodways Alliance, which holds an annual symposium on Southern food, publishes essays in a podcast, and maintains a growing oral history collection. Critics say he's helped build an important organization, but has failed to hire people of color or to give non-white voices real power. Others, like recent Salt and Spine guest Tony Tipton-Martin, said there was a need for change, but stopped short of calling for his resignation. Food writer Nicole Taylor summed up the concerns, telling the New York Times that, quote, when you look at the history of the organization, it's built on black stories, and there is not one black person in a position of power. The organization's only black staffer, the only person of color, in fact, employed as a part of their nine-member team, resigned last week. Again, that was our conversation with freelance food writer Tammy Teclamarium. You can find her on Twitter at TammyETC. So we know food media has a race problem. This isn't new. And it's something that we can't just talk about now when there's what feels like a mass public awakening to experiences in a few specific workplaces. This is an ongoing conversation about equity, one we've been having on our show in conversations with authors and one we pledge to do better to center in future interviews. After talking with Tammy, we called up Kathy Irway, food writer and host of the podcast Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, to discuss her recent piece in Grub Street, titled Food Media Must Work Harder to Fix Its Racism Problem. Our conversation focused on how we can see food media's race problem on display in published recipes. You open the piece by talking about this signifier of weeknight and noticing that a number of recipes at Bon Appetit specifically sort of use this term to um, title the recipe, right? There's, you note there's a weeknight pad thai, there's a weeknight mapo tofu. Can you talk a little bit about seeing that moniker and what sort of um, response you had to that and what that prompted for you? Yeah, well, I just want to, I mean, I'm <laughs> I completely stand by my points, but I just want to make clear that like, that was that lead that um, the examples that I pulled out in the lead was just were meant to be emblematic of larger issues that I was trying to point to um, the ways that food media, especially in recipes, are centered from a European place. It's not it wasn't meant to be like the whole story was about, you know, this idea of the weeknight moniker. 
Right. Um, but that was just an example of that. Does that make sense? So totally. But I did find it odd that in those cases, the weeknight edition didn't actually make any sense. And so it was because it was applied to things that are not laborious and not time consuming. So that was even extra strange. <laughs> so, sure. so for instance, you know, Mapadofo and uh, Had Thai are like naturally weeknight friendly. Um, and I realized that weeknight is something that is very attractive when you're scrolling through recipes. So it seemed to me like these were added onto dishes, not out of, you know, a helpfulness to understand a dish, but to kind of stand out in a crowd so that people might be attracted to it who were otherwise, you know, maybe a little bit intimidated. But in effect, I think Bon Appetit was sacrificing sort of like accuracy for the sake of catering to and and centering themselves from a European uh, tradition when it comes to recipes, which is, you know, just not very helpful um, in terms of just food knowledge, (laughs) which is purportedly, you know, is, is, is its job. And you note, I think, importantly, that that's one sort of example of how that manifests itself. Um, Are there other examples that you see, like, quite frequently when you're looking at food media, the examples of, like, the centering of whiteness or European styles? There's so much discussion about how this manifests. I mean, I can't even name all the ways. You know, naming, titling recipes is certainly interesting. A lot of folks have discussed the idea of stew instead of curry when it yes. comes to the Allison Roman naming conventions. I think that names have changed in cookbook publishing and recipe publishing and mainstream media over time. It was interesting. You know, I've noticed that there's a lot of um, names that are just sort of like they sound more definitive. And um, it's like, instead of chicken with vinegar and and olives and something like, it would be like vinegar chicken or like olive chicken or mm. turmeric chicken. And it's just like, wait. So it's just to say that there's, there's fashions and uh, these are all reflections of who is writing the recipes. So that's something to take into account as well. You know, 20 years ago, I don't think I would have seen recipes that sound like vinegar chicken it's just so vague and so you know or like a harissa chicken um, sure. you know something that is like taking an ingredient that um is the star and applying that to to a dish so I, I don't know i think that these are all you know something to take into consideration as we examine the meaning behind um and the centering of, of recipe food content in general I also asked Kathy about why these conversations have felt louder in recent months and what she thinks needs to change in food media. It's not an anomaly. And I feel like a lot of people have tried to talk about some of these issues for quite a while, but a lot of it has been going on behind the scenes. And I I feel guilty of that as well. Like I will gripe to fellow cookbook authors about, oh, you know, this, this, you know, so-and-so publisher is trying to make me you know, rename my cookbook in a way that I don't like, and it doesn't make any sense, but I feel like I have to, or like a a recipe or an article. And I feel like a lot of these discussions have been going on just behind the scenes. And now everything is just breaking, breaking forth like a floodgates. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We need to hire more people of color in positions of power. I mean, if you look at all publishing cookbooks now, or like just 
media in general, so it could be digital or print or whichever, still across the board, it's it's a very, very white space. And that's not reflective of the the food landscape. I mean, even the restaurant landscape is is a little bit more diverse than publishing, you know, and, and there's a lot of talk about need for, for leadership in that world, in the restaurant world too. But I, I think home cooking is even just as prevalent. I mean, people you can't have a publication that only caters to incredibly kind of, I don't want to say ignorance, but very narrow understanding of all the cuisines out there. And I think that that's just the way it's been centered for a long time. And it excludes so many people. And um, it's, you know, it's embarrassing also. <laughs> I think it's yeah. like, I think that if we look back at some of the content that was put out, uh, I mean, everyone laughs at old cookbooks from 50 years ago, right? Sure. Yeah. Kinda, and, and now if you look at the, the content of, you know, something that is, quote unquote, you know, exotic or international today, it's still it's still lacking a depth of knowledge. And it's still speaking to primarily a white audience due to that. Um, it's just not fulfilling its job, which is to to be instructive and um, teach about cuisines that are in America and, and very much, you know, with the knowledge that is very much there from people who cook these cuisines. It's just not really taking advantage of that because we're primarily publishing uh, a lot of white voices um, still in yeah. this industry. It's not just Bon Appetit. It's not just Thug Kitchen, but that is one example where folks have been talking about Thug Kitchen's problematic nature, like so many different ways that that cookbook series is problematic yeah. for years and those calls have gone unanswered. So, I mean, it, it has been written about, and, and I actually, you know, had a podcast on heritage radio network with Nicole Taylor, where we talked about all the backlash and the outcry to this book series from folks like Michael Twitty and Brian Terry. And that was six years ago. Yeah. So, and now it's kind of like too little too late almost. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that they're changing their name, right? It's like... Yeah. And I don't really know what their plan is. <laughs> it's very strange. But I think that it's important to like empower folks to speak out and to listen to the discussions. So I really you know, thank you for, for taking on this, this series of discussions that you're having right now. But um, I just want to mention Thug Kitchen because that was such a huge bestseller. Like it was just a smash success. Right. And uh, if you look at the, the best selling cookbooks tend to be a little bit, you know, vague and sort of just kind of general and American cooking. But uh, I, I think that there's room there for, for more books. I mean, you look at some success stories that have like slipped through the cracks that didn't fit that mold. And like sure. Indianish by, by Priya Krishna. Yeah. Um, I think that Vegetable Kingdom by Brian Terry is doing pretty well. I mean, we could have been celebrating so many more voices like that. I think that publishers are just way too afraid to take chances on books that don't fit this mold that has historically performed well. And maybe it's time to to show that, you know, that a lot of those books that did do well, I mean, there was a lot of Paula Deans back then. I mean, it's just, why did, you know, why did we even bother when there's books that like, could have been... We could have thrown our resources and support behind. Why did we even bother? I think is the perfect question yeah. for Paula Dean yes. in, in her entirety. Um, book by the pioneer woman or something. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, and I think often publishers are still sort of looking at successes like Priya's or like Mm -hmm. Nick Sharma's season as like sort of anomalies. Or, I mean, I still talk to so many authors who are told like, we've already got an Indian book this fall. We don't need another. So, I, I mean, do you feel like that's sort of changing? Like these successes are sort of not being categorized as anomalies, but that the publishing industry is finally waking up to maybe the issues they have? have No idea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're not alone in that regard. (laughs) I hope. Hopefully, yeah. That's Kathy Irway. You can hear her podcast, Eat Your Words, on Heritage Radio Network. Finally, to close out today's show, I called up Joey Hernandez, who joined Bon Appetit magazine as its research director about six months ago. I wanted to talk with Joey about what's happening inside Bon Appetit today. Ever since kind of the events of early June that led to the ouster of the editor-in-chief and the vice president of video, uh, we have kind of split up into different task forces. That's what we're calling them. We don't really have other names for it, um, but they are staff-led initiatives to cover the recipes, um, how, how we develop them, how we write them, re-looking at the editorial missions of the various verticals of Bon Appetit, the magazine, of course, but also healthy-ish and basically, and the kinds of voices we use on the platform um, in terms of like contributors and, and the chefs that we work with and really broadening that to become a more inclusive process. Um, I know that a lot of the other editors are working on um, updating their pitch guidelines and also reaching out to um, new voices to kind of, I don't know if this is the right word, but apologize for the past and and just kind of look forward to the future. Um, I know that I can't speak for the rest of my team, but um, I know that we all really care about changing food media while we have the chance, you know? Um, This has really been a galvanizing situation, and there are a lot of us on staff who want more than anything to improve and also regain the trust of the food community. Yeah. And how, I mean, you you noted there's tasks for us, there's some of this work that's taking place, but how do you sort of envision that happening? Like, it seems like some of these challenges are so systemic in terms of who is even... um, who's even hired, who's even given a platform for their voice, who's even, whose work is being commissioned and whose isn't, and at what, at what rates and what terms of fairness and and pay and access, like how, how challenging do you envision that's going to be to actually rebuild food media in a way that is more representative? Yeah, those are all really good questions. And I wish I had like a pat (laughs) answer for that, you know? Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I think, I think that, you know, this month has shown that we have to have these tough conversations, which seems like such a cliche at this point to have a quote unquote tough conversation. But people are seeing the kind of roadblocks that were built and that weren't systemized. I mean, I've only been with the, the publication for six months, but it's clear sure. to me how isolated various departments of the publication have felt as a result of the work created by the former editor-in-chief. And just those lines of communication are now being recreated, rebuilt, restructured. And already it's kind of, it's energizing a lot of the staffers, especially longtime staffers. And it's so simple. Like, it just seems so wild to me that 
these conversations could have happened, but because of the culture somebody else created, you know, there was this kind of inertia of this is what it is. Um, and it, it really required taking away that one person to tear down those walls. Um, and, and I don't know how long any of this is going to take. I don't know how effective any of this is going to be, but I'm hopeful that even this last month has felt momentous and has felt really energizing. Um, and I've, again, I've only been there six months and like, I already feel it, you know, I already feel the energy and, and the forward pull and push to, to be better. BA also includes Epicurious, right? Our, you know, sister brand that has kind of operated within the shadow of BA this whole time. And the lines of communication are, are breaking down and we're talking, you know, between BA's editors and Epicurious's editors and, and just that discussion to me is showing how communication was, um, I don't know how to describe this, was, was held by those in power and, and doled out as they saw fit. I think to me, a big lesson is decentralizing power and decentralizing that like main voice for the brands um, is a huge step because if one person is calling all the shots, then the publication is made in their image only and their image alone. And you see that in how BA and to a smaller extent, how Epi has published in the last few years, um, BA, you know, pushing whiter, cool, hip, urban voices versus, you know, talking to laborers or farmers or, or the people that make up the food industry. You see that coming from the voice of this one entity uh, who kind of decided the be all end all of cool. And, how that trickled down to each of the verticals and, and how even a recipe name uh, was titled or how recipes would be anglicized versus using the traditional name, things like that. And I don't know that other brands necessarily have that problem of a all-powerful voice of the brand, but I think if I can impart one lesson, it's, it's that, just kind of decentralizing that, um, that gaze. Joey recently wrote a newsletter to Bon Appetit followers about the staff's plan to revisit and update recipes. I asked him about the process that's just now beginning. It's kind of wild right now um, because it is it is so, you know, so conceptual and you can't just like Google search like racist BA recipe and then you know, work off that search page, you know, right. there's gotta be, there's gotta be like a system and there's gotta be a way to account for, for these changes and what they look like. And we don't even know what those changes are going to be yet. I do know that I've gotten a lot of pushback from some subscribers who, you know, worried that I'm going, we're just going to be erasing things and just deleting things and um, erasing something racist without addressing it in the past or like in addressing it in any real way. And I just want to be clear that that's not my goal at all. My goal is to recontextualize these recipes to, to keep them up, but also show our work and show the changes. Um, I think a lot of that is determining the kind of editor's note that we want to leave on these pages. Are we just adjusting something because an ingredient, let's say the Makrut lime might have had a racist name in the past and we're just fixing that in the ingredient list. Um, that's kind of easy fix for a lot of these recipes um, that exist in, in the database. Is it a more robust head note where if it's a white writer, we ask, we go back to them and ask them their inspiration for the recipe and, you know, credit those sources. Is it a recipe that we 
quote unquote elevated to be more accessible to a white audience? And like, do we need to address that in an editor's note or a head note? Or do we just rewrite the whole thing and redevelop it? These are a lot of questions that I'm asking of the test kitchen editors who have a deep, like, frankly, incredibly impressive um, institutional knowledge of the recipes that they've cooked and worked with. You know, we had a meeting just last week about what this looks like, both from an SEO perspective and, and the data and the publishing side, but also the test kitchen side. And, you know, we're all kind of grappling with you know, the shape, the size, the smell of, of what this project looks like and, and how we tackle it. And it's really fascinating um, for my side of things because, you know, I'm the research director, but I'm also a journalist and having to contend with a record and, and, you know, like in journalism, you can't just change something and not tell the audience. Like that's just not going to fly. And I agree. Like, I don't think that we should be doing any of that work but I think recasting things, um, things that no longer are appropriate and that no longer work, I think that that's a worthy cause. And I think that telling readers how we came to that conclusion benefits not only the reader, but also makes the recipe stronger. And I also think that if you don't care and you just want the recipe, then you can still just read the recipe. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't behoove you to skip it. The recipe is just going to be better. I asked Joey, too, about Kathy Irway's piece and about a recipe with a title like Weeknight Pad Thai. Right. I, I loved Kathy's piece. I thought it was incredibly well-written, and she brought up some really great points that I'm already still thinking about in terms of how we're going to do this audit. I, I really think that um, her work on that is definitely going to influence how I look at my work going forward. As for that Weeknight preface, I think that that's really interesting because it presumes a default that you, the white audience, is not going to cook this on a weeknight at all. It's casting the recipe already from a place of whiteness and not just giving you the recipe. Like, why, why can't the reader make the call on when they make this, right? Why do we have to brand that recipe that way? The work is not just going backwards. It's also how do we prevent this going forward and how do we do this respectfully and honor cuisine because we do all love food. Like, that's the thing is like... Food is still literally our lifeblood at this mm -hmm. magazine, and and people have such a deep love for it. But I think that not everybody has the vocabulary, right? And and I'm especially not always going to be correct, but I want to meet people where they are and then push us forward. Um, I'm not interested in litigating anything, litigating past mistakes, and and you know assigning blame. I just want to get the record right. Joey noted that other work in the task forces includes thinking about how Bon Appetit evaluates restaurants that it will feature, how they assess whether a place has a terrible kitchen culture, how to better center the labor in people in the food industry instead of dehumanizing food products that were created or harvested or touched by people. And Joey emphasized that Bon Appetit staffers hope to bring readers along with them, saying they want to, quote, trust our audience to be part of the journey, too. We don't want to keep apologizing. <laughs> I think, you know, the readers, certainly the brand and the company wants us to be, you know, rah-rah positive again. And that's going to take some time. Like, we do have to lay down this foundation of work. We're all not just like, you know, serious and like huddled together trying to like solve things. But, you know, we do have to fix it. So that's going to take some time. And hopefully followers and fans and readers will trust us to do the to do right by them and um, we hope that we can show that we care and that there are a, a core team of us who are really trying to dismantle the kind of toxic structures that have been put in place 
That's Bon Appetit Research Director Joey Hernandez. You can find him on Twitter at JoeyBear85. We reached out to other Bon Appetit staffers and video hosts as well, but as of this episode airing, they either declined to participate or didn't respond. You can find links to all of the articles mentioned in today's show on our website, saltandspine.com. You'll also find resources for reading more about the issues we discussed today. Stay tuned next week for the next part of this series as we discuss representation in cookbooks and how publishers are working to create a more equitable industry. You can find bonus content from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. And if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, click subscribe wherever you're listening. Of course, you can also support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks, including our first Salt and Spine cookbook dinner club party with bottom-of-the-pot author Naz Dravian. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>